Let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us today to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. This is the last part of the last letter written by the Apostle Paul. It uh, includes some solemn, weighty material and some prosaic requests, as we'll see, that he makes of his younger ministry colleague, Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 22 Let's hear God's word together. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Puddins and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, you are a faithful fortress, a refuge to which we may come continuously, Lord, in all of our troubles. We thank you, Lord, that you have stood by our side again and again. And Lord, we pray that we would be confident that you will be faithful to the end. Uh, We pray that as we meditate on this passage today and hear your word to us, that our confidence in your faithfulness would increase. Father, also moved by this passage, we pray that our relationships with one another would not be merely cordial, yet distant. We pray that we would love one another deeply as brothers and sisters in Christ, that there would be a real warmth and affection. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up friends for all of us who would love us and encourage us and spur us on to love and good works. Lord, we pray that your word today would accomplish your purposes in our midst. We pray that you'd bring healing and consolation through your word. We pray that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. And Lord, if there are those who persist in opposing Christ and persist in refusing to submit to him, we pray that you'd graciously, through your word, draw them to yourself. Glorify your name, we pray. Amen. Uh, St. Augustine. St. Jerome, two important 4th century church fathers and figures, uh, they agreed on a great deal. However, they didn't have the warmest of relationship uh, and and the closest friendship. They agreed on many things, but, well, Jerome could be a difficult man. And later church tradition suggests that before the end, the two of them ended up being close friends. Uh, In response to this, the historian Gary Wills suggests about the only way Jerome could get lasting friends was posthumously. In other words, he had to die before he could make friends. He had to get out of the way for for the possibility of friendship and relationship. He wasn't very good 
at making friends. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, seems to have had a God-given talent for friendship and relationship. We see as we read his letters, uh, he writes very affectionately, very warmly, and very often about his colleagues in ministry, about his brothers and sisters. Just read the ends of his letters. You get all these names. Oh, greet this person and that person, and this person sends their greetings. The Apostle Paul was a deeply relational man, and so we see him here at the end of his life. He knows he's going to die, and soon we see, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, that he's lonely, and he's writing to Timothy here at the end, Timothy, come visit me. Come visit me while you still can. It would be a joy. It would be an encouragement to see you. As we look at this passage today, we will look at three things. Number one, Timothy's instructions in verses 9 through 15, instructions Paul gives to Timothy. Uh, Number two, Paul's situation, verse 16, and the Lord's presence and protection in verses 17 through 18. So Paul, end of his life, knows he'll die soon, and what does he say? He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. This explains, incidentally, in chapter 1, why Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me in my chains. Timothy's all the way in Ephesus. Paul's in Rome. Uh, but now we see why he has to say that, because Timothy might be reluctant to go to Rome and support Paul. Paul says, do your best to come to me soon. Verse 21, he says, show up before winter. Try to get here before winter. It's harder to travel during winter in the ancient world. And of course, uh, Paul is going to die very soon. So uh, time is of the essence. Do your best to come to me soon. And then Paul gives him the reason. He's been deserted. Uh, Some of his friends were forced to leave Paul uh, for purposes of ministry, like Crescens and Titus, uh, but others, like Demas, abandoned Paul. Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. There's a remarkable statement because Demas is identified in several of Paul's letters as a companion in ministry. Colossians 4.14, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Philemon 24, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. Paul viewed Demas as a fellow worker for the advance of the gospel. But Demas has abandoned Paul in his hour of need and his imprisonment. And what's most instructive for us is the reason that he has done so. Why has Demas abandoned Paul? Well, he's done so because he is in love with this present world. We don't know if this is outright apostasy, rejects Jesus, it's a temporary lapse, but whatever it is, we see that he's been seduced by the world. Now, this is an essential concept in Paul, this present world or this present evil age as he describes it in Galatians 1. And let's be clear about what he doesn't mean when he speaks of this world. Paul isn't talking about nature, trees, rocks, mountains, streams. Uh, The Bible and Christians have a very positive view of the created world and created pleasures. They are made by God. They are made to be enjoyed. We affirm the goodness of stuff, of matter, of creation. So the world here doesn't refer to nature. Neither does it refer to human culture as such. Music, movies, books, uh, dancing, art, painting, right? Uh, All of these things in themselves are legitimate and good. We create because God creates and Human culture in itself is perfectly legitimate, and Christians uh, are free to engage in it. So world doesn't refer to nature or culture. What does it refer to? Uh, World or age, as it is frequently used by Paul, 
refers to mankind in its opposition to God. Mankind untouched by the grace of God and the renewing work of the Spirit. Uh, Human culture, human societies uh, structured by an antagonism to God. So mankind in its opposition to God. And we know that the world, mankind in its opposition to God, has its own wisdom, its own values, its own sense of what is good and beautiful and true and right. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.20, Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? The world has its own sense of you know, what, what is worthwhile, its own values. And that wisdom is antithetical to the wisdom of God. God says it is more blessed to give than to receive. The world says you do you. All about self-fulfillment. God says there is blessing in sexual purity. The world says that's just repression. It is good to pursue sexual fulfillment to the nth degree. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world are two antithetical trajectories, two contrasting modes of existence. And the world is constantly preaching its anti-God message to us in a variety of ways. We may not be aware of it, sometimes we are aware of it, sometimes we're not, but the world is constantly influencing us and communicating a vision of life that is contradictory to the will of God. And it frequently does this through cultural products, like movies and music and glossy images in clothing stores and uh, Facebook and social media. Again, these things in themselves are not sinful, but the world uses cultural products to convey its anti-God message and subtly influence and seduce us. The church historian Carl Truman observed that there was a massive moral revolution on the question of gay marriage and homosexuality. There was a consensus or a majority of Americans against that proposition, gay marriage in the 90s, and then radically and quickly the pendulum swung in the opposite direction. A decade, whatever it was. The question is, how did that happen? And he notes, it's not like new arguments were produced to persuade people that uh, homosexual marriage is legitimate and right. So what explains it? And his, Truman argues that it was, uh, it's, Shows like Will and Grace, sitcoms, that do what? They, they normalize homosexual behavior. They make it maybe a little bit glamorous, a little bit sophisticated. It's not argument, but story and images that ultimately, he suggests, uh, cause people to change their mind. So we need to be wary of this influence. I think as a rule, we understand when we speak of the unholy triad of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We understand the temptation of the flesh, our own sinfulness and evil desires. We understand temptation that comes from Satan, but I think we are less aware of the seduction that comes from the anti-God propaganda of the world that is embedded in all the noise around us. And the aim of this propaganda is to make righteousness look weird and repressive and to make evil look life-giving. It's a perpetual party to rebel. At least that's the uh, imaging or the message of the world. 
So the world is constantly seeking to seduce us. Paul says as much in Romans 12 too. Uh, do not be conformed to this world. The world is constantly trying to squeeze us into its image and mold. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the, the renewal of your mind. Demas was seduced. How can we avoid being seduced? I think the first thing to recognize is that the world is, in fact, a temptation. There, 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 it, we are being beckoned away from God in all of these different ways, and we need to be more aware of that than we often are. So many times I think it's a temptation for us as Christians to go with the flow, do what everybody else is doing, and unthinkingly engage in the world around us, unthinkingly consume these cultural products. And when we do that, we are being influenced by anti-God messages, ideas, attitudes, in ways we don't fully appreciate. So the first step towards resisting the allure of the world, is to be more discerning, thoughtful in our engagement with the world around us. One of the questions we need to ruthlessly ask is this, what message is this communicating? All cultural products, verbal and not verbal, often embody a certain way of looking at the world, certain values. What message is this thing communicating? What is this glossy image in the clothing store? communicating. Is it communicating that modesty is weird and repressive, right? What message is being conveyed in this movie? And often the things that are most damaging to us are not the things that we can point to and say, this is obviously wrong, because those are the things that we tend, the shield goes up. We know it's bad. We try to avoid it. We don't watch that movie because of that. The thing that's most detrimental is when there's something evil that's presented to us as good, and we don't perceive that. So, if, for instance, a movie portrays adultery as liberating instead of destructive and dishonoring to God, it's taking a, a bad thing and portraying it as a good thing. We want to be sensitive to that. We want to be able to spot those things and, and spit out the bones and train our children to do the same. So what message is being communicated? Maybe sometimes you have to the pause button as you watch TV with your kids or watch a movie. Uh, I do it. It annoys them. Nevertheless, uh, <laughs> Hit the pause button and go, what are we seeing there? He's got, he's got, you know, that panda's got two dads. Right? What's going on? Let's talk about this. What messages are here? But you have to cultivate that kind of discernment and not just simply breathe the air because a lot of the air is toxic. So first thing, what, what message is being communicated? And secondly, how is this thing shaping me? What practices and attitudes is this encouraging? Great question to ask, especially about social media. Don't roll your eyes yet. Hold on. Um, hear me out. There was an uh, article in The Atlantic a few years ago called, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? And the author made this observation. Facebook imprisons us in the business of self-presenting. Self-presentation on Facebook is continuous and possessed of a phony nonchalance. Look how casually I threw up these photos from the party at which I took 300 photos. <laughs> Curating the exhibition of the self has become a 24-7 occupation. Let me read that again. It's a good line. Curating the exhibition of the self has become a 24-7 occupation. Perhaps not surprisingly then, the Australian study, who uses Facebook, found a significant correlation between Facebook use and narcissism. Facebook users have higher levels of total narcissism 
exhibitionism than Facebook non-users, the study's authors wrote. In fact, it could be argued that Facebook specifically gratifies the narcissistic individual's need to engage in self-promoting and superficial behavior. Now, hold on, before you raise your objections. Let's just think about this together. Uh, so much of what happens on social media platforms, not just this, but much of what happens, is you're giving others a, a sort of carefully edited version of your life. Look how good I look, and look how amazing my food is, and look at all the cool experiences that I have. And what is the tendency of that? Well, the tendency is to turn you in on yourself, to make you more self-involved. You spend more time thinking about yourself and how you will be perceived by others. Now, is there a spiritual cost to that? Does it encourage certain habits of soul and discourage others? Like, wherever you land, you at least need to pose that question. If you believe as I do, and we should believe, that self-forgetfulness is one of the best things in life, not to worry about yourself and what people think about you, but to be focused on your work and focused on the people around you, is this kind of constant posting of pictures the enemy of self-forgetfulness and ultimately humility? And if it is, then maybe we need to consider how we use this digital tool in ways that don't destroy our pursuit of Christ in humility. What I'm advocating for is a lot more thoughtfulness, especially in the area of technologies, uh, social media, this whole realm, not simply doing what the world does, but reflecting on what is this doing to me? How is this tool making me its tool rather than the reverse? Cultivate discernment and help your children to do the same. Don't just do what everybody else does. And of course, finally, if we want to resist the toxic air of the world, we need to breathe the clean air of Scripture according to Romans 12. We avoid being conformed to the world by having our minds renewed. And renewed not just as individuals, but breathing the clean air in the church, fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters, and together pursuing Jesus. The church constitutes a counterculture, and the air, with God's blessing, is cleaner here. And that's one of the things that helps to keep us from being seduced and pulled into the world. But understand the world. It's, it's anti-God values that are being constantly communicating to, communicated to you as a real spiritual danger, and don't just brush it off. And help your children understand that. Demas was seduced by this present evil world. And so Paul says to Timothy, Demas is gone, so many others are gone, come to me. Luke alone is with me. Luke is the beloved physician, and we find him often where Paul is. You know where Luke is based on where Paul is. Right? So often he's uh, Paul's traveling companion. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. And he's uh, by Paul's side through it all. So Luke is there, though many have deserted, not loyal Luke. And also we're told about Mark. Get Mark, this is John Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now if you know the book of Acts, this is a really remarkable statement. Because in Paul's first missionary journey, he has Barnabas with him and he has this guy, John Mark, with him. And then they set out to preach the gospel. And at some point in that missionary journey, Mark says, oh, I'm done. And he doesn't see it through. He goes home. So the next go around, Paul says, there's no way we're taking Mark. Barnabas, who's Mark's cousin, he says, no, 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 we have to take him. Give him another chance. And there's a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas such that they end up going their separate ways. Paul takes Silas, goes his own way. Barnabas takes Mark and goes his own way. 
uh, sharp disagreement. So what happened to Paul and Mark? Well, we find out in Paul's letter, uh, and he's mentioned actually a couple of times in his letters, that the two men have reconciled, and significantly, not just they've reconciled, but Paul now views Mark as, quote, very useful to me for ministry. Whereas Mark was once a liability, you couldn't count on him. He'd run away when things got hard. Now he's become helpful to me for the work of ministry, for the preaching of the gospel. We learn from Mark and these, these details that we get about him. Well, I think one of the things we learn is actually not about Mark at all, but about Jesus and his power, not simply to forgive us and wash us of our sins, but to make us new, to help us to mature. By the work of Jesus in our lives and the Spirit in our lives, immature people can become mature. You can become mature. And so when you see your failures, the thing to do is not keep agonizing about them, but to receive the grace of our Lord Jesus and pursue maturity, pursue growth. Immature marks can become useful to Paul for ministry. So take heart. Uh, Tychicus is mentioned uh, as going to Ephesus. Timothy's ministering in Ephesus, and the fact that Tychicus is going there means that Timothy can leave. That's probably the idea. And then we get to some more prosaic requests that Paul makes. Uh, make sure you bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. This would have been a heavy cloak with the hole for the head in the middle. Uh, as we saw, winter is coming, so Paul uh, wants to be warm. It's probably something to be said for that. Right? He's not so spiritually minded that he didn't value a good cloak. Uh, get the cloak that I left with Carpus, perhaps when he was imprisoned at Troas, maybe. He had to, he had to leave quickly and wasn't able to take his uh, cloak. Uh, bring also the books and parchments. Uh, Paul, even, he's got a little bit of time left to live, and he, what is he, he's still scribbling in his cell. He's still got his books and his parchments. Uh, he's still working. Uh, no retirement for Paul. He, he works to the end. And I'm not suggesting that there isn't a place for maybe scaling back as you get older and your strength fades, but use whatever strength remains to serve Jesus and others. Max yourself out. Paul doesn't retire. He's still, even in his cell, as he awaits death, uh, reading and writing and doing what God has called him to do. And by the way, if you're uniquely called to pursue knowledge as the way God has called you to uh, serve him, uh, pursue knowledge even when conditions aren't good because they'll never be good. So sometimes to pursue knowledge, you have to do it in, in jail. That's the only way you obtain it. So bring the parchments. Oh, and Timothy, uh, remember Alexander the coppersmith? Watch out for him. He did me great harm. We don't know what harm he did, but we know he opposed Paul's message. Uh, so watch out for him. But what's striking is Paul uh, makes these various requests of Timothy. The striking bit of instruction is, Timothy, come to me because I'm lonely. Like, what do you think of the Apostle Paul and you think of his spiritual stature and his walk with the Lord? Surely Paul's at a point where he can say, you know, I have Jesus and I don't need anybody else. Except, of course, that's not what he says. I have Jesus, and I value other people. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 4, uh, he writes to Timothy and says, As I remember you with tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Timothy, I'm going to die soon, and it would be a great encouragement if you were to come and be with me for a while. Timothy, do what you need to do. Come see me. It would be an encouragement and a delight to me. That was Paul. Not so spiritually minded that he said, oh, if I have Jesus, I don't need people. No, it's precisely because I have Jesus, I need also the encouragement that comes from Jesus through them. Biblically speaking, it's not a sign of strength that you can go through life in isolation and not need anyone. 
It's an indication of a diminished humanity. There's something that's gone terribly wrong in your heart. Your heart needs to grow a little bit. We need people. God created us for relationship, for community, for friendship. These are good things. They enhance life, and we need to pursue them. I think the characteristic modern bargain is to buy personal freedom at the expense of rich relationships. Right? Our schedules are uncluttered with commitments to others, but then we're also isolated and lonely. It's a terrible bargain. The good life is one spent you know, over a good meal and good conversation with people we love. How do you need to unsettle your rigid schedule? How do you need to maybe give up a little freedom so you can have thicker, richer, deeper relationship with people? And I'm not just talking about you know, the kinds of relationships where you meet someone for the purpose of helping them grow in Christ. Those are important, necessary. We should do those things. I'm talking about the kinds of relationships that feed you. Friendships. Pursue people whose company refreshes your soul, brings you joy. I think one obstacle to doing that is we say, well, you have no idea how busy I am and how tired I am. It's possible, but maybe that kind of friendship and conversation would refresh you and cause you not to be tired. Haven't you had that experience? You're exhausted, but then you go out to dinner with someone and your heart just soars. The, the back and forth of good conversation and good food brings life and refreshment. So don't downplay the benefits that come from, from friendship. Pursue that. Uh, it's worth even giving up other things for the sake of getting it. Paul certainly understood the importance of relationship and sought it, and so should you. So those are his instructions to Timothy. Here's Paul's situation, and it's pretty bleak, except it isn't. So we'll see. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. That's a, an amazing statement. When you consider all that we've just said about all the, of the network of relationships and friends that he had. Perhaps Luke came, Paul may be generalizing here, but the important point is that many of those who should have been there, many friends, brothers and sisters, trusted colleagues who ought to have been there with him in Rome, when he stood before the awful majesty of the state in the courtroom to give an account of himself and his ministry. Brothers and sisters should have been there on the side supporting Paul, and they weren't there. He had to face this dark night of the soul, this massive ordeal by himself. Not only did he have to endure hardship, but he had to endure hardship in relative isolation. All deserted me. You see this motif in Scripture. Even in the Psalms, Psalm 88, one of the, arguably the bleakest psalm. You have not just suffering, but suffering in isolation. Psalm 88, 18, the writer says, You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So not only am I going through the dark night of the soul, but I'm doing it without the consolation of friends and people to prop me up through encouragement. Significantly, Jesus knew what that meant in Gethsemane. I'm fascinated by the fact that when the Son of God was on earth and he stood there in the shadow of the cross and he understood the ordeal that he was going to undergo, his instinct as a human being was to turn to his companions, to his friends, for encouragement, for fellowship, uh, for prayer. Mark 14, through 34 says, He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That is Jesus. 
And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Stay by me a little while. Jesus was a human being. Son of God, yes, but also a human being. And as a human being, in his moment of anguish, he felt the need for friendship, for, for, for an encouraging word. And significantly, it doesn't seem to have come. The disciples nodded off. They were tired. It was late. Jesus had to endure the dark night of the soul, this ordeal in front of him alone. And perhaps that's no small comfort to those of you who uh, experience loneliness and feel that you do have to face the troubles of life by yourself. Uh, this is a path that our Lord himself walked. It's a path that he well understands. And so when he looks at you, he looks at you not in an unknowing way, but with sympathy and compassion. Paul was alone. Christ was alone. But despite being abandoned, notice Paul's attitude. May it not be charged against them. He didn't allow this to become toxic. He wasn't embittered. The implication is that he forgave them and says, Lord, don't, don't make them pay for their abandonment of me. They presumably left out of fear and shame. It's okay, Lord. May it not be charged against them. However bad things are, they can be worse. We know this. Uh, there, there are ways of troubling your trouble, as I think Paul Tripp puts it. And one way to trouble your trouble is to give way to bitterness and resentment and not forgive people. Oh, they have wronged me. Uh, you, know, they, they, they have, you don't understand what they've done to me, and I want them to pay. Uh, as difficult as things may be, you're making things far worse by refusing to forgive. One, one way to bring relief, even in the midst of your heartache, is to forgive people. Yes, they've wronged you. Yes, they've done what they shouldn't have done. But you've done what you shouldn't have done and have wronged God in infinitely more ways. And you've received forgiveness again and again and again. So forgive people. Let go of that resentment. It makes even the hardships that we do have to bear lighter. So that's Paul's situation. Alone, but as I said, verses 17 and 18, not alone. And here there's a beautiful statement about Jesus. Everyone's abandoned Paul, but not Jesus. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. In that courtroom, there weren't the faces of brothers and sisters in the stands, but by his side was the risen Lord, who, who never takes his presence away from his people. And there's a motif in Scripture that the Lord is always by the side of his people. In Genesis 28, 15, uh, Jacob has fled because his brother Esau wants to kill him because he stole his blessing. Jacob at that point is a man on the run with a walking stick, not sure about the future, alone. And in that moment of departure, loneliness, God reveals himself to Jacob in a dream and says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Psalm 23, 4, the good shepherd is always by the side of his sheep. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Psalm 91, 15, God says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I won't do what many do when someone gets in trouble, I run in the opposite direction. No, in trouble, I will be with him. Christ says in Matthew 28, 20, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To the very end of history, I will be with my people every moment of every day till the end. And finally, Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You believe that? 
that others may flee from you, they may prove fickle in their loyalty in moments of crisis, but God will never leave you or forsake you. That was Paul's experience. Left to his own devices, he wasn't alone. Jesus continued to stand by him. And he stood by him to empower him. Notice that Jesus stood by him and strengthened him so he can be faithful to his calling. He poured strength into Paul that he might do what he was called to do. When we come to the end of our own strength and resources, we've not come to the end. There continues to be in Jesus a vast reservoir of strength that we can draw on continuously. And being a generous and gracious Savior, he has no reluctance to give us the strength that we need. So our own limitations are not limitations when Jesus stands by our side because we draw on his strength. And that's what Paul did with the result that he was faithful. Faithful in the proclamation of the word. So what we see here through Paul's experience is that when all other helps fail you and all other relationships fail you, Jesus doesn't fail you. That is a a solid foundation for your life. It's an unshakable basis upon which to live your life. If you don't have Jesus and the standard supports that we have in life fail, you have nothing. If If your money fails and your health fails and your friendships fail, if all of it gets stripped away, there's nothing left. It's hopeless and bleak. But if you have Jesus, even if those other helps are stripped away, you still have everything. The Son of God himself continues to stand by you and to strengthen you. And I think this is really vividly captured at the end of 1 Samuel, which is an Old Testament book. At the very end of that book, you have Saul, Israel's first king. David, Israel's second king. And you have two stories put side by side. And Saul is filled with fear and his heart is trembling because he sees the Philistine army in front of him. And he knows that he and the nation are in trouble. Then you have David. He and his men arrive at the city of Ziklag, where where David and his men lived. And he discovers that it's been overrun and all of their wives and children have been kidnapped by the Amalekites. And they're desperate. And the men begin to talk about stoning David. They're so bitter at what has happened. So you have David and Saul at a moment of crisis. They're both facing disaster. But what is significant is how utterly bleak Saul's situation is. There's not even a ray of light. Saul says in 1 Samuel 28, 15, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. It's bad enough, but it gets worse. And God has turned away from me and answers no more. What do you do when all of the supports that you can normally rely on are taken away and God himself is no longer there? That is truly dark and truly bleak. But that is never the case for the believer. David, in a comparable moment of crisis, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David had a refuge in that moment of crisis when everything was taken away. He could go to the Lord and find strength. Saul had nothing. Bleak despair and ultimately death was his fate. So consider the difference between the privilege of the the believer who has Jesus and, and those who don't. Even if everything is taken away, in a sense, nothing is taken away because the Son of God remains by our side. 
So I don't know if you've been in a season of loss, if you've experienced the loss of a husband or a wife or financial loss or the loss of health. Those are painful losses. Those are not insignificant losses. But Paul's experience shows us that even in the midst of that, Jesus continues to stand by you and to strengthen you. Don't forget that. Consider what you have in Jesus, even in the midst of your loss. Jesus was present and he empowered Paul. But not just that. Jesus protected Paul. He rescued him from the lion's mouth. Probably a way of saying that he enabled Paul to be faithful in his trial or protected him from dying in the first go-around. But in any case, the Lord rescued him. And Paul is convinced, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. When he says rescue from every evil deed, that includes the idea of being protected from evil deeds like the one Alexander, the harm that Alexander um, inflicted on Paul. There's protection from evil, but there's also protection through evil. Sometimes God allows us to, to go through hardship, but he brings us safely through that hardship with our faith intact. And this is important to recognize because, as we know, a significant theme in 2 Timothy is suffering. Timothy, if you're faithful to Jesus, you will suffer. All those who desire to live a righteous life will experience persecution. But, but understand, even as you face that reality, that everything you go through, Jesus will himself bring you safely through on the other side spiritually so that you will safely enter his kingdom on that final day. Jesus is your protector. He's going to walk with you every step of the way in life. He's going to walk down life's road and he's going to chase away the wolves and the bandits and he will bring you safely home. He's a shield that deflects every arrow. What, what sort of attitude should we have in light of that? Jesus will bring us safely through all evil, bring us home to the kingdom, and nothing can finally take away from us our relationship with him. What kind of people should we be? What confidence and what peace should we have in light of that reality? If you look at the world without verse 18, the political and cultural situation, your emotional condition will, will fluctuate between intense fear and intense anger, back to intense fear, which will give way to intense anger, right? If you just look at the world and uh, the troubles that we face and the challenges that we face, you will be unsettled. You won't know peace. And that's actually, you know, uh, where many, of us, many people live in our society. They're wringing their hands. What's going to happen to us? And certainly there's cause for concern. But underneath all of that is the reality of verse 18. Whatever we go through, the Lord will bring us safely home into his kingdom, and not just us, but also all those who belong to him, our children, our wives. He will bring them safely home to his kingdom. So that means even when the world is turbulent, it's an election year, take this to heart, um, even when the world is turbulent, there can be great confidence and peace knowing that our Lord will bring us home. And when you believe that, the result is very liberating. If you're, if you're filled with fear and anxiety, you're going to be selfish. The focus in life would be self-preservation and the preservation of those you love. But if you're confident that actually Jesus is preserving you, and you don't need to be too intensely worried about yourself, that liberates you to live sacrificially for other people. So recognizing this truth, then, is, is life-giving. Now, what should we, how should we respond? If this is who Jesus is, he is the one who will never forsake us, but will be present in all of our troubles. He is the one who will pour strength into us when we need it so we can be faithful. He is the one 
who's going to walk with us through this life and bring us safely home. That's who Jesus is. What's the right response? Paul shows us worship. And the worship is directed here not in the first instance to God the Father, but in this instance to God the Son. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When we realize that we have such a Savior who will never forsake us, the appropriate response is to see that truth, to adore, and to give thanks. Thank you, Jesus, for being such a great Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray that for the sake of living effectively for you and bearing much fruit, you would grant our confidence in you to deepen and ripen. We pray that through your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word, uh, you would grant us to live by faith, not by sight. In all the turmoil that we experience in this life, let us be firmly grounded in your faithfulness and the truth of your word. Amen.